This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So why don't we get started? This is only four minutes past our starting time since it's a good time to start. Um, welcome to Labrie. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're about <clears throat> a little more than halfway through our summer term lecture schedule. If you're interested in seeing what other things are coming up on Friday nights, there's a couple little printed up copies of this on the table to your left as you walk out the door. You can also look at our website. And uh, for those of you who want to want to go back and listen to things that have happened before, we usually post on our podcast um, the lectures that we've done the previous Friday. It usually, usually winds up being up on the podcast early the next week, um, depending on how much work Nikayla has to do. <laughs> or Esther, sorry. Yeah, Esther. Um, but uh, feel free to check that out also. Um, next week... We are excited to have a guest speaker, a, uh, a good friend of ours who has been a student and a helper here, met her husband here, a uh, wonderful person named Shauna Kurihara, who's, who's just been um, finishing up a degree at Gordon-Conwell Gordon on um, spiritual direction. There's a, her, her lecture is called Beauty as Soul Care, Caring for the Garden of Your Soul. So stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, and then on July 8th, Dick will be lecturing on uh, an introduction to critical race theory. Um, but tonight, we're going to turn to this topic, <clears throat> the Lord's work and the Lord's way, and uh, revisiting this idea because it's uh, originally a... Really, a bunch of ideas that Francis Schaeffer <laughs> engaged with years ago. I'm going to give you an idea of the complicated ancestry of this talk tonight. Um, the missionary Hudson Taylor was quoted as saying, The Lord's work and the Lord's way will never fail to have the Lord's provision. Uh, sometime in the early 1970s, Francis Schaeffer took up the phrase, The Lord's work and the Lord's way and preached a sermon by that title at the Swiss Libri. And he gave the sermon a number of times. It was later printed up um, in this book called No Little People, No Little Places, or just called No Little People, actually. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been uh, read and reread over the years by many folks. Fraser Schaefer also articulated a lot of the same ideas uh, and expanded on them more in his book, True Spirituality. Uh, every so often in Labrie, at different branches, we take up a particular aspect of Dr. Schaefer's work and kind of turn it over, re-examine it, present it, and really with the aim of, of seeing how, how these ideas apply to our current moment. 
we don't do this out of out of loyalty to our founder, uh, really. We don't feel obligated to promote Francis Schaeffer's writings uh, per se. Uh, but we have found that many of the things that he talked about <clears throat> have had a really enduring relevance. And we've seen the truth of many of the things he talked about borne out um, in the years since he wrote them. So a number of years ago, Jim Paul, who is, uh, so we're getting into the complicated ancestry of this talk. Uh, Jim Paul, who's a good friend and colleague from the English Library, he's the director of the English Library, reworked some of Dr. Schaefer's thoughts from the Lord's work and the Lord's way. And uh, I found Jim's presentation of this, of these ideas, really, really helpful, inspiring. Um, and so I'm borrowing not just from Francis Schaefer, but, but from Jim Paul heavily in, his, in the way he presents these ideas as well. Uh, we're grateful for Schaefer's thinking on this topic, not just because it's... Um, biblical or helpful or true or relevant, that it is those things. Um, but it's also because Francis and Edith Schaefer took these ideas very, very seriously and really attempted to live them out that Labrie came to exist at all in the first place. So um, the Lord's work and the Lord's way is not just an idea that uh, Labrie has emphasized. It's really Labrie is, is in a sense the fruit of, of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And ever since, in the work of Labrie, each branch has tried uh, very imperfectly, but to, to stay true to this. And uh, much of what in Labrie we call our faith principles, the, the, the faith principles that, that uh, Labrie is founded on and operates by, is really founded on these, these ideas I'll be sharing tonight. So what I'm presenting to you tonight is sort of a jumbled collage of Francis Schaeffer's thoughts from his sermon, from the book True Spirituality, from Jim Paul's lecture, and from and from observations of living and working in Labrie uh, for 15 years, actually more, more than half of my working life, just realized. Um, scary. Um, I'm not going to go to great lengths to footnote and give credit in all the places where credit is due. It would be very, very cumbersome to do that, so it's, it's kind of the Labrie way to, to plagiarize each other. Uh, shamelessly, hopefully Jim Paul agrees. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so this is what you're going to get tonight. Um, I would recommend if you want to to hear uh, perhaps a better, more clear presentation of these ideas, go find Jim's lecture on the Libre Ideas Library online. Um, <clears throat> in the in the sermon, the Lord's work and the Lord's way, Schaefer addresses what he considers the central problem of the church in his day. And I think he would probably say the same thing today, or at least we, we can recognize that it is still a central problem. And before we talk about what the central problem is, uh, I want to back up and get a running start um, so that it'll make sense when we get there. Uh, the Lord's work is difficult. There's a lot to be done in the world to advance the kingdom of God. So to be a Christian is not a, it's not a small thing. It's not a, a trivial calling. It's, it's, we're called to monumental tasks as Christian people. And he begins his sermon really talking about the need of this generation to speak prophetically into the world with tongues of fire. He's quoting a hymn. Uh, speaking prophetically into the world to persuade people of their need for Christ to contribute to the growth of the church and the advancement of the kingdom, uh, and to make a tangible difference in the world. 
So we need to go about the Lord's work in the Lord's way, which uh, Francis Schaeffer equates with living in the power of the Spirit. So to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way is to live in the power of the Spirit. Um, Christian people need to have the power of the Spirit, and the Lord's way and the power of the Spirit are really synonymous. He uses those things as interchangeable. Uh, They're completely connected. To work in the Lord's way is to to, uh, live in the power of the Spirit. So the phrase, the Lord's work in the Lord's way, highlights a distinction that's well worth reflecting on from the outset, I think. Uh, and the distinction is this. There's work that Christian people do for the Lord. There's preaching, there's teaching, pastoring, going to the mission field, evangelizing, raising kids, running businesses, making art, starting schools, studying medicine, psychology, farming, economics, whatever it is. There's lots of work to be done. Uh, in honor of Christ. But there's also the way Christians go about doing it. There are, on the one hand, goals to reach, serving in the kingdom of God, but there are also methods we use in reaching those goals. There are tasks we need to achieve for the church, but there's also the kind of people we are as we strive to achieve those tasks. So you get the idea. There's, there's in, a, in a way, we're talking about ends and means. Uh, there are the ends, which is the work, and there are the means, which is the way. The way we go about it. <clears throat> and Dr. Schaefer completely rejects the idea that in the service of the Lord, having the right ends justifies any and all means. He insists, and he's right, that it's really, really, really important, not just that we have kingdom goals in mind, but how we go about pursuing those goals. Jesus did not just give us a list of destinations or targets to aim for. He offers his life as the life to imitate. Uh, He commands that we live in a certain way as we relate to God and to the world around us. Uh, His way is every bit as important as his work. Um, It's not irrelevant as long as we have the right goals in mind. Not at all. And this is so crucial that if we fail to work in the way of the Lord, we should ask ourselves, and and Schaefer talks about this in other places, if we fail to, to work in the way of the Lord, we should ask ourselves, are we even doing the Lord's work at all? At what point does the Lord's work stop being the Lord's work if we're not going about it in the way? Uh, is it really the Lord's work anymore if we ignore God's way? Uh, even if there seem to be very good results, will God be pleased with those results if we've rejected his way? Are our goals really kingdom goals if in seeking them we abandon the way of Christ the King? Kingdom goals and Christ the King. Are we honoring the King as we supposedly work for the kingdom? Uh <clears throat> Is it the Lord's work in the Lord's way that we're doing, or is it our work in the Lord's name? And this is a radical difference between these two things, but they can sometimes look similar. (laughs) Or at least they get confused for each other. Is it the Lord's work in the Lord's way, or is it our work in the Lord's name? So as you can see, there's potentially quite a serious and threatening challenge to Christians and the church in these words. Um, The way matters, not just the work. 
And um, my hope is that in the end, after this lecture is done, we can all share ideas and uh, think of illustrations in which this is, in which we've seen this this issue play out. Um, so I'm relying on you later on. So that that was my running start. We're just talking about there's there's a difference between work and way here. Um, what does Schaefer define as the central problem? He writes, the real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances that surround them. And that's an important point right there, I think. Uh, notice that he identifies the real threat not in all the external secular forces that are battering on the church from the outside. He acknowledges those may be real problems. There may be things that have to be addressed. But it's not the main problem, he says. It's not. He, he has a list of things that, that, that are not the main problem. Humanism, communism, liberalism, all the isms. Uh, we could add to the list some sort of you know, contemporary concerns that we have. Crises over the environment, uh, about abortion, uh, about sexual ethics. All very important issues, but none of them are the central issue or the central problem. The real problem for the church is homegrown, he says. It's an internal problem, which historically really has often been the case. There's uh, one of the early church fathers talks about persecution is the seed, or the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, under persecution, the church tends to grow and get stronger. And if we start if we start to think of the main threats that threaten the church as primarily external threats, very often we're dead wrong. <laughs> the, the threats that have the threats that really threaten the church are are very often internal threats during times of peace and prosperity. That's that's when the church is the most at danger very often. Uh, its own self destruction and its own folly and its own corruption from within. <clears throat> um, that was a tangent, so I've lost my place here. Just a second. So, um, the people of God, he says, individually and corporately. So, so everything that we're talking about tonight, we could say, is an issue that we need to wrestle with as people, but then an issue that the church has to, to, to wrestle with as a corporate body. And these ideas, are, are, they, they totally apply to both your own personal life and to the life of the church. Um, but the problem, uh, the, the people of God doing the work of God, but in their own way, not in the power of the Spirit. This is what he identifies as, as the problem. And really, the goal tonight is to explore what he means by this, and, and what, what, you know, what does it mean today? The power of the flesh and the power of the Spirit, these two kinds of power. It's worth noting that <clears throat> while Francis Schaeffer's work has had a real and lasting influence in the area of what he called true truth, engaging, engaging the world with this idea that, that um, Christianity is offering something objectively real and true, and we can engage with ideas in the public square and talk about doctrine and ideas. Schaefer's impact uh, has had a lot of impact in that whole realm, that thinking intellectually as Christians is worthy, worthy and possible. Uh, his writing on spirituality, though, uh, has not taken as much root. <laughs> How we should live, what actually the spiritual life looks like, what is true spirituality uh, look like, um, and which is one of the, hence the relevance of these words still today. I think there's just they're absolutely relevant, and and um, hopefully we'll we'll um, 
be able to explore some of that together in the discussion time. He makes two important, important points early in his sermon. First, the power that Christian people need can come only from Jesus. When in Matthew 28, this is the end of, of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is, um, is ascending, um, he says to his disciples, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. And by that he means all power in heaven and earth is given to me. Which is another way of saying Jesus' power is the only real power there is. Uh, power in the life of the Christian comes from him or nowhere. It's all his. Apart from Christ, anything that looks like power is actually the power of the flesh. <laughs> it's not in Christ. If it doesn't come from Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> it's the power of the flesh. Second, he says, and I'm paraphrasing brutally here, um, that a Christian in whom the Holy Spirit dwells should experience something of the guidance and power of the Spirit in their daily life. This should be a daily experiential reality. And to clarify, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is not the same thing as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which begins when any person accepts Christ and is baptized. The, the, the Spirit uh, is in us, indwells us. That's one thing. But whether the person has, a, has the power of the Spirit is really a question of how they live every day after receiving the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit indwells God's people in order to be at work, to stretch and grow us, to to lead and to guide us, to be active, not a passive resident in our souls. Uh, the Spirit is not supposed to be a passive resident. Even if it is a resident, it's not supposed to be passive. Um, but it is possible, he says, to have the Holy Spirit, to be a Christian, but not be living in the, in the power of the Spirit. And uh, this is a challenge, uh, and he, it gets even more challenging to me, because he says, to have the power of the Spirit, we really, really need to start by recognizing our absolute need for the power of the Spirit in our lives, which is to say, recognizing that there's no power in ourselves. <laughs> um, there's no spiritual power in ourselves. We need to recognize our need for the Spirit's power. Without recognizing our need for the Spirit's constant work in us, we will never know what it is to have the power of the Spirit, we won't even get started in in much of what the Christian life calls us to. And we need to realize that the Spirit's power is just as important for living the Christian life as the work of Christ is for salvation. Um, To say that we trust in the cross of Jesus for our salvation, but then to try to earn God's acceptance by offering our good works to Him, this is actually to reject the work of the cross and to lose its benefits. Uh, To truly trust the work of Christ means to trust the cross alone, plus nothing, in Schaeffer's words. The work of Christ plus nothing is the only way we receive the benefits of the work of Christ. When we try to to supplement it or offer something of our own righteousness, it's the same thing as saying, no thank you, to God. We relate to the power of the Spirit, Schaeffer says, in a similar way. If we say we trust in the Holy Spirit's power, but practically we rely on the flesh, we are not supplementing the power of the Spirit, we are rejecting it. We're losing it. We're opting out. We're missing out on spiritual power. So we come to the Spirit in need of spiritual power in as helpless a way as we come to Christ in need of justification. In as helpless a way. Um... 
this is very convicting to me because I'm thinking, how often do I think of the Holy Spirit in this light? How often do I think of of the Christian life essentially as accepting what Jesus has done for me and then you just get to work, you know? Right. Um, how often do I acknowledge that, that to accomplish anything of value in God's eyes, it needs to be the work of the Spirit in me? Not, maybe sometimes, not as often as I should. <laughs> how often do we talk about this in church? I don't know. So the central question that, that Francis Schaeber is asking is this. As we go about the Lord's work, what power do we rely on to accomplish it? What power do we trust in to be effective? <clears throat> and we'll come back to that question over and over again. That's really the central question. What power do we trust in to be effective? I want to talk a little bit about just what is meant by the power of the flesh here, because I've, I've used the word a bunch of times already. I don't want there, I don't want it to be misunderstood. Um, Schaefer uses the word the flesh in much the way that Paul uses the word uh, sarx, I believe, the Greek word flesh, not as a condemnation of the physical body and its needs, but to refer to whatever is not of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work and then the work of the flesh. It's not a contrast between uh, the, um, yeah, some, something spiritual and something physical. It's a contrast between the Holy Spirit and anything else, <laughs> essentially. <clears throat> so to rely on the power of the flesh isn't so much to do with, with physicality. It really means to rely on human strength, human ingenuity, human activity, human charisma, rather than on the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant by the power of the flesh throughout. Uh, Schaefer warns against a kind of Christian activism which places its hope and trust in the efforts and expertise of people. He's not against being active in the world. We'll talk about that more later. He's not, about, not against caring for particular issues. Uh, but he, is, he warns against a kind of activism which places its ultimate hope and trust in human effort and expertise. He refers to a statue in Paris of Napoleon. I think it's one of the statues with Napoleon is standing with his hand in his coat, uh, which is just the epitome of, of kind of the, the modern uh, <clears throat> view of life. It, it, it communicates the spirit of our age. It screams, uh, this is Schaefer's words, I did this, I do this, I will do this. <laughs> um, I am the one that affects the world. I am self-sufficient and independent. I decide the direction of my life. I'm writing this story. This is the flesh. <laughs> uh, autonomy and self-reliance. And this is in radical contrast, says Schaefer, to the attitude of Jesus Christ himself, who actually has authority, and yet who in Gethsemane says, not my will but yours be done, to his father. He contrasts, he contrasts the sort of spirit of Napoleon, this finite, completely de- deluded individual, with the attitude of Jesus Christ himself. So... <clears throat> Human activity, even with the best intentions, is not and cannot be the basis of the Christian's trust. And here are some uh, biblical examples that drive this point home. Some of them are examples that that, um, Dr. Schaefer mentions 
There's one or two in here that came to my mind as well. So in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel follow the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. In the daytime, they follow a pillar of fire at nighttime. When the pillar stops, they stop. When it moves, they move. The, whether God moves ahead or not is what determines whether they pack up camp or unpack camp. <laughs> uh, they never run ahead of it. No matter how good their ideas seem, they follow the Lord's path in this very, very daily, deliberate way. Sometimes he parks them in one place for a long time. Uh, sometimes they, they, uh, they march every day. They move when he says, move. A negative example, I think, I, I, uh, I'm just, just, just going to mention it in passing, though, is, is the first king of Israel. Once they've actually, uh, once the time of the judges is over and, and Saul anoints, I mean, uh, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king, Saul never really trusts the Lord, does he? Um, instead of waiting and listening and obeying the commands of the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands, tries to get in touch with the spirit of Samuel, who has died, for guidance. And this is Saul really relying on his own notions of effectiveness, his own notions of expedience, when God seems to be slow in responding. God is not keeping up with my schedule of, of what needs to be done here. And so I'm just going to come up with another plan, alternative plan. This is really the reason why Saul, why God removed the kingship from Saul. It's like, you're not the one. <clears throat> At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells the disciples to wait until the Spirit comes. Perhaps to teach them this lesson at the very beginning of of the newborn church. Don't do anything yet. Wait for the power of the Spirit. You can't do anything yet without the power of the Spirit. If you do, it'll be the wrong thing. (laughs) Uh, Wait until you receive the power of the Spirit. Then you'll know what to do. Then you'll have the power to do it. Then you'll have the words to, to speak. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says that the message to the early church was not, Christ has risen, now let us be busy. (laughs) It's not, uh, and this is again a quote, not a matter of being saved and then simply working hard. Which I think is really kind of the way many of us view our faith. We're saved. (sighs) Okay, get down to work. Now it's about me. Now I'm doing my part, right? (laughs) Jesus did his part, now I'm doing my part. Uh, he says that's really a misunderstanding. It's not about how busy we can make ourselves, even with the right goals, even with very, very uh, good and lofty aims in service of God. <clears throat> Later, he fleshes out uh, more what he means by living in the power of the flesh. What does reliance on human activity and expertise look like in more recent times? Those were all biblical examples. Um, and so... This is, this is a quote from the Lord's work and the Lord's way. <clears throat> and I'm going to spend the rest, the, quite a bit of time uh, sort of processing this, this quote with you. Is it not amazing that we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust in its forms of publicity, its noise, and imitate its ways of manipulating men? If we try to influence the world by using its models, we are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. If we put activity, even good activity, at the center, rather than trusting God, then there may be the power of the world, but we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. The key question is this, as we work for God in this fallen world, what are we trusting in? To trust in particular methods, 
is to copy the world and to remove ourselves from the tremendous promise that we have that we have something different the power of the holy spirit rather than the power of human technique so what are some examples of the kind of things Schaefer mentions here? He doesn't, he doesn't flesh them out. He doesn't list examples of what he means by the world's wisdom, by publicity and noise, by manipulation, um, by methods, by technique. But I think we can, with a little thought, we can fill in, fill in what he means here. And I'm, I'm just, my examples are sort of arbitrary. They're what came to my mind. Um, the world's wisdom. We tend to give, even the church tends to give great authority to the conventional wisdom of how things are done at the particular time in which we live. We tend to launch church programs to meet every perceived need. An evangelism program, a young adult program, a discipleship and Christian growth program, a young singles program. Uh, The church tends to also adopt models of growth that are based on corporate growth models. Often without stopping to ask, should the church look different than the corporate world? Should the church operate according to different principles? Uh, Should the church hire a headhunting firm to conduct a pastoral search for them? With little or no difference in how they operate from the secular corporate counterpart. The latest notions of best practice in our field and whatever techniques have been shown to yield results. Um, the problem with some of these examples that I've just been mentioning is that they introduce a process that can function perfectly without any input from God at all. People have thought through these things. Studies have shown. We've done research. This is what works. Who cares what God has to say about our particular moment? <clears throat> Many of us tend to rely heavily on, and this gets a little controversial, but, uh, and I'm not, I'm not in any, um, generalized way critiquing, um, psychology in the, in the world of, the world of psychology, but many of us tend to rely heavily on what the latest psychological studies tell us about ourselves and our friends without really weighing them alongside biblical wisdom. Uh, about who we are and how we flourish. Sometimes psychological categories are viewed as the basic foundational authority, and the Bible can be used as a supplement to add a Christian flavor to how we understand what a person is. Uh, But too often the word of God is not permitted to seriously challenge the conventional wisdom in this area. (laughs) Too often Christians buy into the therapeutic culture uncritically uh, and don't allow the Bible to actually speak. These are just a few, and again, this is not a criticism of psychotherapy or anything like that in, in a general sense, uh, but it is a criticism of just putting our trust in something that's not God. Putting our trust in something. This is what salt, this is the way to understand ourselves. This is the way to, to fix ourselves. <clears throat> so these are just a few thoughts that came to my mind of examples of, of what Schaefer might have been pointing at when he, when he says the world's wisdom. What about publicity and noise? We trust in the power of advertisement and hype. When I say we, I say we a lot of this time, not because I'm I'm necessarily accusing each of you and myself of making all of these mistakes all the time, but I am talking about the church. And if we are Christians, whether we like it or not, we're part of that body, we're part of that family. 
And uh, so I say we, not in an accusatory way, but uh, but you know you know maybe we maybe we do really need to think about these things personally. Uh, but it's a problem that we see in the body of believers to which we belong if we're if we're Christians. So that's why I'm I'm kind of um, I'm naming my I'm numbering myself in this uh, <clears throat> as part of the problem here. We the church tends to. Uh, trust in strategies of self-promotion. Certainly as individuals, but also as the church. Churches spend lots of money and time crafting their brand. Packaging their ministry to appeal to the largest number of people possible. Or to appeal to a specific demographic. Their target demographic. Uh, the people that they, they uh, that in, in their mind are the most important to reach. Basically, all set by the standards of modern advertising. Of course, uh, social media exacerbates this a lot. Um, the way to be really used by God is to improve your online presence, <laughs> to get as many hits or likes or retweets as possible. I don't even know what those things mean, but they're important, supposedly. Um, these metrics are the measure of success today, so we trust them. This is this is the way. This is the the way we uh, we take the pulse of, of if God is at work or not. This is the litmus test for for how else would we know? You know, unless we get lots of likes. There's an assumption that the quantifiable things in the life of the church are the important things, and this this is really seductive. Um, the quantifiable things are the important things. It's another way of saying. The things that we can evaluate and control are the things that matter. Numbers allow us to analyze our performance and make adjustments to improve our performance, staying in control the whole time. The more mysterious, intangible virtues, like maturity in the faith, humility, unity, obedience, quality of community, love, these things are hard to measure using numbers so they're overlooked because they're not measurable and quantifiable. Uh, They might not be overlooked by individuals in the church. There may be lots of talk about it, but in terms of the measurement, the metrics, the standards of whether we're succeeding or not, (laughs) uh, we want something that we can count because then we know how we're doing. And the things that we can count are usually the things we can influence in our own power. So, implicit in this obsession with worldly publicity is is the tyranny of numbers. In many churches, good numbers justify any means. Increased membership, increased attendance, increased giving is the litmus test that proves we are doing the right thing. And because we're doing the right thing, God is blessing us. And that's enough. It's just the numbers. Um, I've seen this in various churches, including my own, at various times. The fact that lots of people are showing up at a certain night trumps any objections to how we're doing it. Look at the numbers. It's kind of like, Coach, I didn't do what you wanted me to do, but look at the scoreboard. Right? You know, it's a little bit like that. It's like, well, is that, is that how God relates to his church? Is, it, is that the kind of obedience he's looking for? <laughs> <clears throat> Related to this is the obsession with celebrity. I'm still talking about publicity and noise. <laughs> uh, 
so much of the church, maybe particularly in America, seems to embrace something very like the secular world's obsession with celebrity. Very little difference. God's work will really take off if our pastor is a huge charismatic personality. If he or she looks great on stage and has a brand that draws a crowd. Uh, We know God's work is really being done based on the number of people streaming that sermon online all over the country or world. Or the number of digital downloads of that sermon. If these things are happening, happening, it excuses any number of other ungodly behaviors. Um, When the church does this, it's a good time to ask, is it God that we are relying on? Or is it celebrity? Publicity? Noise? Um, what comes to mind here is I'm not, I'm not going to uh, just hate on Mars Hill, but but the um, the um, <clears throat> podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, was 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 very sobering and and painful to listen to, um, but also sort of chronicles something something about this kind of thing the the the, uh, the celebrity pastor and the seductiveness of that and the growth that no one can deny. But what's actually going on? What's at the base of it? What is what? What's the way? It may be the work of God, but what is the way? And if the way if the way careens too far off from God's way, is it the work of God? I'm not. I don't think we can necessarily say that. I don't have authority to say that necessarily, but I do. I, it's it's a good question to ask. Um, what about another thing that Schaefer mentions in that paragraph is manipulating people, and manipulation can take many many forms. Um, Jim Paul, in his reworking of this sermon, suggests that Schaefer might have had in mind some of the very, very successful cults of the of the sixties and seventies, in which very charismatic leaders were masters of manipulation, and thousands of people getting swept up in their grand visions uh, because of really the power of personality. And when you have a powerful personality, a charismatic personality, uh, it can be used to manipulate lots and lots of people. And this is one of the things that Schaefer talks about. Is why do we ape? Why does the church ape this thing that's going on that has nothing to do with the church? Why, why, why are we imitating that? Another example of manipulation, um, uh, as a church musician, I can say that the, uh, the way music functions in many churches is manipulative. Um, not always, thank God. Uh, but uh, I think there, there's examples that may, maybe most of us can think of where very little room is left for the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do in our times of worship. The atmosphere is carefully managed with, I was just talking to a friend today, his home church back home recently just introduced the, the synthesizer pads providing background Sound throughout the whole sermon, throughout no, throughout the whole service, during the announcements, during the prayer, during everything, it stops for the sermon. But other than that, there's there's just this. Um, so this is trying to manage an atmosphere. Uh, first of all, it's knowing what the atmosphere should be. How in the world do we pretend to know what it should be? And managing it, controlling it, orchestrating everything down to every you know. Uh, smoke machines. Um, the use of highly sophisticated lighting techniques that are, that are perfected in order to achieve a, a whole atmosphere. Um, 
The music often does not encourage the participation of a congregation, but functions as an onstage performance for an audience, both by the sound mix and overall volume. If you can't even hear yourself sing, you're not really going to. Uh, but also by the tone and presence and body language of the music leader. It's, it's, it's obvious when it's, when it's a concert. And I, I, I um, this is getting very personal, I'm sorry. Um, worship songs are carefully crafted to take you on an emotional journey, and there's almost never a moment in which you're not sure how you're supposed to feel, right? I'm supposed to feel this way right now, I'm supposed to feel that way now. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you're being told in a million different ways. You're being signaled what you're supposed to feel at any given moment. Uh, and I think this is manipulative, honestly. Um, and I, I love music directors, and it's a hard road to go. You get a lot of criticism from every, criticism from every side, so I'm not, I'm not just trying to be a, a curmudgeon, but um, there, uh, there are ways of approaching it which really attempt, you know, they're, they're human attempts to control humans. To create an experience that leaves no, not a lot of room for what the Spirit of God might want to be communicating to people at that given moment. Do we leave room for that? So, um, what do we make of all these things? What Schaefer calls our attempts to ape the techniques of the world. Are church programs bad? Is attending to what is considered organizational best practices bad? <laughs> Is wanting to get the word out about our church bad? Is carefully arranging a worship song bad? Uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> but uh, putting our trust in these things as the real source of effectiveness is bad. That's what's being warned, warned against. Because <laughs> this trust actually displaces our trust in God. It blunts our openness to his guidance and his leading, and it cuts off, uh, cuts ourselves off from from his power. Elsewhere, Schaefer makes a helpful distinction between unbelief and what he calls unfaith, which I think is at the root of our tendency to rely on the flesh. He says, uh, Christian people who affirm the truth of the Bible, they have belief. They're believers. Uh, There's obviously a real difference between someone who believes and someone who lives in unbelief, someone who, who... doesn't believe the Bible is true, doesn't believe the claims that it makes, doesn't believe that God is there or real. But even for the Christian person that does believe, they can still live in unfaith, a state of unfaith. They believe the claims of the Bible, um, but practically they live as if none of it was true. (laughs) Does it actually practically, tangibly impact the moment-to-moment way in which you operate, the moment-to-moment decisions that you make, the way in which you think and talk. Um, all of us are capable of living, even those of us who really do believe that, that uh, God is, is, is real and believe um, that we belong to Christ, can live as if the visible world is all that exists. We can live as if God did not really hear and respond to prayer. And this is what Schaefer calls unfaith. It's not the same thing as not believing, but it is, uh, in a sense, not applying what we believe in any way that, that makes a difference in our life. So, uh, this is the state out of which believers trust in human strength rather than the spirit, I think is what he's saying. What are some of the potential consequences of doing the Lord's work in the power of the flesh? What, are, what happens? What's the, what's the fruit of it? 
Um, and I, again, I'm just going to just talk about a couple of the things. So, some of these are uh, just my own thoughts. Some of them are, are uh, directly from Schaefer's writing. Um, one thing that can happen is we develop an instrumental view of God. This is something that uh, Dick has talked about a lot in the past. Instrumental religion, what does that mean? Basically, treating God as an instrument, a tool to get something else that you want more than God. God is there to help you achieve some other end other than himself. He is the one who is there to make my plans succeed. If this is our view of God, even if it's unspoken, we've actually ceased to worship the God who's actually there. The God who's actually there is not a vending machine or an instrument. And the mindset can go something like this. Very few of us would pray this out loud. <laughs> so I'm voicing something maybe that, that, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's a subtle kind of subconscious attitude that we can have sometimes. I know that I certainly have. And, uh, but it goes something like this. Lord, I have a vision and a plan to bring it to fruition. Come along with me. Get on board. Bless my vision and make it succeed. Validate it in the eyes of others. You are the Lord, Almighty God. All things are possible with you. Here's my agenda. Help me make it happen. I'm intentionally being a little satirical there, but it's, you get the idea. This is <laughs> We can think this way without realizing it sometimes. Uh, I had a very good friend who used to be in, in a high school ministry, and... One of his uh, students he was very close with was graduating from high school and had walked with him for a number of years in this ministry and was going off to college and he was wanting to say something encouraging to his youth minister and he said this, going off to college, I really want to make my faith a priority. I I want God to be my wingman. (laughs) And my friend said, he doesn't want to be your wingman, he wants to be your Lord. And I would add, he actually, he is your Lord. <laughs> That's what he wants to be. Um, <clears throat> so, you get the idea. I have an awesome plan. It's a bunch of stuff I want to get done, but I'm a Christian. And I believe in this God, who's all-powerful. He can come and make it happen. How great. You know. <clears throat> um, another, another, we're talking about consequences of living in the flesh, right? Consequence, things that will come out of it. Um, you may have noticed they're not, they're not going to be good right? uh, <clears throat> our lives will fail to be a demonstration of God's being whatever power we do display in our lives will be that of people not of God we may be displaying a lot of power right? but it won't be God's power that's being displayed uh, whatever results come from this kind of attitude will bring glory to people not to God Our lives at best will be a demonstration of our talent, our planning, our hard work, but they will not demonstrate the reality of God, the reality of the unseen world, the reality of his character and who he is. So this is very much a coming from Schaefer's theology of of a watching world and that the Christian life is supposed to be a demonstration of the, of the truths that it claims are true, right? Uh, it's It's not enough to say this is what we believe and we're going to hold to that. You can be very, very orthodox, but our lives are supposed to demonstrate the reality of those things that we say are true. And the watching world 
if we're relying on the power of the flesh, will see no real difference between the church and the rest of the world. Why would they? If the church apes all the methods that the world trusts in, why would the why would we expect the world to see anything different? <clears throat> Connected to this is that we were, we ourselves lose a sense of spiritual reality. We will lose that experiential awareness that God is really there, that the unseen world is just as real and present as the seen world. This kind of existential spiritual reality is something that many, many Christians lament having lost. Um, You've probably heard this before. Maybe you've felt this before. I know all the Sunday school answers to your questions, but God stopped being real to me. God just feels unreal. Where's the reality? It doesn't touch ground. Uh, In a sense, this shouldn't surprise us if, because of our failure to trust God, we never give Him the chance to act in the daily tangible things of life. Of course He becomes unreal to us if we're not actually really open to what He's going to do rather than um, asking Him to come along with us. (laughs) Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, when we rely on the power of the flesh, we will simply be defeated. Eventually, or right away, we will be defeated because the battle we are fighting is a spiritual battle, not an earthly one. And, and Schaefer talks a lot about the, the spiritual battle that's going on all the time, and spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. And he, he, he draws on Ephesians 6 here. I'll just read the passage. It's the well-known passage about the armor of God. This is Ephesians 6, verse, uh, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There's a lot to glean from this text. Obviously, maybe you've heard sermons on it. Um, But the battle is not of flesh and blood. So to engage with fleshly weapons will not get us anywhere. (laughs) This is why it's the armor of God. He's talking about the armor of God. God put on your armor. Put on God's armor because it's God's strength and might that we are supposed to be strong in. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, It's God's power and strength that is our protection and our strength. Uh, Schaefer talks about this a little bit like, you know, living in the the power of the flesh is a little bit like trying to fight a demon with a sword and the the, the sword passes right through it with no effect. (laughs) Um... 
the only way to combat spiritual evil is with the spiritual weapons that God is going to provide. So the whole armor of God, Schaefer says, uh, he says it's about the whole armor of God. There is nothing in this list that the world accepts as a way of working. (laughs) But there are no other ways to fight the spiritual battle. So, as we head out into the world... We, we talk about, the way I'm going to work today is with the breastplate of righteousness. Um, this is not, these are not things that the world honors as being worthwhile or even real. <clears throat> Interesting to note also that Paul's pronouns here he's using in terms of who he's addressing, it's all plural. He's talking to a group of people, and so much of what's referred to as the armor of God has to do with things that are done corporately. It has a lot to do with unity. The armor of God put on in unity a whole body of people, not just you in your in your room looking in the mirror in the morning and putting on your armor. It's not, it's not that. <clears throat> okay. So that's, that's just kind of doing a little bit of a deeper dive on what the power of the flesh is. Now I want to talk about the power of the spirit. What is, what's the difference? What, what's uh, so great about that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> what does it mean? Uh, well, the power of the Spirit, uh, Jim Paul talks about this quite a lot, is, is Christ planting a seed in us and bearing fruit through us by the power of the Spirit. Uh, it's about being fertile ground for what Jesus Christ is going to plant in us and what he's going to bring to fruition through the Holy Spirit. And what does this look like? I'm going to um, really kind of go through some of Schaefer's categories here, some of his headings in the sermon. Uh, It looks like being led by the Spirit. After Jesus' baptism, uh, he is led by the Spirit, the Gospel says, uh, into the wilderness. And Schaefer says, how much more do we need to be led by the Spirit? Jesus Christ allowed himself to be led by the Spirit. Um, He didn't say, I'm... I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm going to leave myself. Thank you. Um, I've got this. Uh, no, he, he submits to the leading of the Spirit, and the, and the Spirit leads him into this time of testing, very intentionally, at the outset of his ministry. <clears throat> and this is a necessary progression, Schaefer says, receiving the Holy Spirit and then being led by the Holy Spirit. This is not just um, very often... It, um, this, this text he's referring to is the text where, where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and God the Father says, this is my son. And then the Spirit immediately leads him into the wilderness. And very often, Schaefer says, and it's true, this is, this is sort of a proof text for the Trinity. People tell him, there it is! <laughs> the word Trinity never appears in the Bible, but there it is! right here. Great! I mean, it is, the Trinity is present fully uh, in that text. That's beautiful. But uh, we, we miss a lot if we just treat it as a proof text for the Trinity. Um, really, this is a model for our lives. Christ, by allowing himself to be led by the Spirit, is the picture of what a human life should be. The perfect human uh, is guided um, by the Holy Spirit. We need to look to the Holy Spirit as the director of our steps in all of life, every day. And uh, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of depth in terms of what, what the, the guidance of the Spirit is and how we discern these things. We can certainly talk about it in discussion time, but it's... Um, Lots and lots of things that can be said. Um, in addition to being led by the Spirit, uh, we have to have the mindset of the cross, Schaefer says. 
which has to do with letting go of power. He refers to Philippians 2, this beautiful text in Philippians 2, which I think uh, many New Testament scholars think it's some sort of hymn, or or, um, it seems to be like a poetic text that, that Paul is quoting and referring to. But it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it is Jesus' own willingness to surrender his power and his divine rights. He never surrenders his divine identity, but he surrenders, he surrenders his divine prerogatives, his divine power. He, he, he um, experiences shame uh, that accomplishes our salvation. We will know something of the Spirit's power if we adopt the humility of the cross as a way of life, which is a release of our own grasping for power and status. This you know, the Philippians 2 passage is a picture of Jesus Christ who can legitimately claim authority and power. It's not, um, he's not being arrogant to claim authority and power. He's the Lord, and yet he lets go of it and gives it up. Um, we cannot really claim authority and power, and yet we grasp it. It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus Christ has done. And the, the call to imitate Christ in life has a lot to do with this, imitating his willingness to give up his status and power pour himself out in love. Another aspect of this that Schaefer points to is taking the lowest place. Again, it's, it's, he's, really ta- he's really looking at different aspects of humility here. When Jesus is talking about going to a banquet, he says to his disciples, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think a cynical person like me can sometimes read this and be like, this is just a text about appearing humble, right? <laughs> sit in the humble place so that you can, so that the, the host will come along and say, wow, you're humble. Move up here. Like, that's, that's wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, you can both have the best seat and appear like you didn't want it. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. Um, he's saying actively seek out the lower places. And if God wants, he can elevate you to a higher place. So in the, in the context of this parable, it's, you know, the host is the Lord himself. It's the Lord that decides you're going to sit here. Um, if God wants, he can elevate you to a higher place. But don't go seeking the higher place yourself. Do not seek power. Strive to be the servant of all. And this is certainly what Jesus is getting at when his disciples are arguing over who's the awesomest and who's going to be the best. And who's, you know, he's like, you have completely missed the point of what... Uh, Spiritual leadership is actually is servanthood. So um, we like the attention, maybe, of the highest place, but this is living in the flesh. 
To live in the power of the Spirit, Christian people should let go of the desire for status, rank, and prestige. And he says that. This is a really interesting quote here. Uh, he's referring to God here. He does not want us to press on to the greatest place unless he himself makes it, makes it impossible to do otherwise. <laughs> Don't seek the highest place unless God makes it impossible not to. That is that's quite radical, isn't it? Uh, and he goes on. Even if we have an office, like parent with a child or elder in a church, it is only the office which sets us apart. We are no greater than those over whom we have authority. If we have the world's mentality of wanting the foremost place, we are not qualified for Christian leadership. This mentality can lift us into ecclesiastical leadership or fit us for being a big name among men, but it unfits us for real spiritual leadership. To the extent that we want power, we are in the flesh and the Holy Spirit has no part in us. This whole idea of seeking the highest place, seeking a place of power and influence unfits us for spiritual leadership is very challenging, I think. Um, elsewhere, Francis Schaeffer says that um, <clears throat> Christians should ask themselves, Who, whose feet am I washing? And if you don't have an answer for that, then you, <laughs> something's wrong. <laughs> whose feet are you washing? I think that as a, as a, you know, as a metaphor for serving people in general, I would say. But... <clears throat> So, uh, this has very real application today. I think the idea of getting evangelical people into offices of power as the strategy for doing the Lord's work can be completely misguided. Often is very misguided. The end goal might be honorable. The end goal might be to bring about revival in this country, to transform the culture for Christ. These are very high and lofty and good things we're supposed to be praying for. Uh, But to put our trust simply in getting the right people into offices of power... As if, this is to use one of uh, Ronald Reagan's economic uh, terms, but if, if we're trying to get the right people into offices of power, as if Christianity will automatically trickle down, right, and transform our culture for the better, from the top down. Uh, this is a pipe dream, and it's done way more damage than good, in my opinion. This, that can get into a political discussion we don't have to have, but... Um, uh, yeah, anyway, that, that's enough about that. Um, Psalm 146. Lots of places in the Bible that warn against this, but Psalm 146 is, is uh, popped into my head, and I, I love it. It says, do not put your trust in princes. You could add, in parentheses, even Christian princes. <laughs> do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. When we put our, our hope in um, the right people in the right places. Blessed, in contrast, blessed is, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Um, the, the, the contrast between these, this is who God is forever and forever will be. Don't put your trust in someone who's going to die and his plans will be done. And, you know, in a couple of years, no one will remember his name. Maybe longer. But, um, <clears throat> so the hope that putting Christian people in positions of power will solve our problems, I think, fails to recognize the truth of, 
of what the Lord says to to Paul. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12, this is the passage he's talking about, the thorn in his, his flesh. Um, God says to him, or Christ says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he engages with a very similar idea in, the, in his first letter to the Corinthians, to the same, the same church. He says this in the first chapter of First Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So these are these are just examples of, of how like God's power and strength is displayed, his reality is displayed best in the presence of our weakness. <laughs> when we um, know that we come up short. The goal of the church should be to display God's power, which the world can only see when we are weak. Our job is not to display our own power, our own expertise, our own um, planning. Uh, our job is to, to, to walk this humble and lowly and, and this path of, of weakness before God, which will actually display the power of the Lord to the world in a way that that would not be displayed otherwise. <clears throat> Schaefer goes on, we need to seek God's approval. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, but it has a lot to do with, with a, a lecture that I wanted to do earlier this term, but I came down with COVID and I was sleeping in bed and um, didn't give it. <laughs> but it's on the fear of the Lord. And uh, seeking God's approval, what does that mean? Well, the, it's the question of whose opinion of us matters most to us and functions as a motivation in our life. Whose opinion? motivates me uh, do I fear the Lord in other words do, does his opinion matter most to me and motivate what I do and say and act or is it people's opinion that it matters most to me um, who am I most petrified of disappointing who am I most afraid of, of um, who do I not want to look like a fool in front of so much of our reliance on the power of the flesh stems from the fact that it is people's opinions and people's approval we most care about. <laughs> uh, so we try to excel by the standards of the people around us. We fear being labeled a failure by their standards, uh, by being found wanting by their standards. So, um, and again, being honored by people is not necessarily bad, but desiring it and seeking after it actually is very dangerous. It's God's approval that we need, and actually the hope of the gospel is that we already have it in Jesus Christ. We already have God's approval. Now we need to live um, in confidence of that reality and and uh, imitate Christ in everything we do. Schaefer talks about trusting in God's methods. I think this is what he means. He's contrasting this to trusting in the methods and the techniques and the noise and the publicity of, of humans. And Jim Paul notes that it's actually sort of a misnomer because it's not really God's methods. It's to the extent to which God has a method. 
doesn't really have a method. He, what it is is a relationship that he's welcoming us into, opening a door to a relationship which is dynamic. It's not a technique with step one, two, three, and four. It's a relationship which is dynamic. Uh, and to, to, to live trusting him is to live in response to him, back and forth. Um, Sometimes in the Brie, we talk when there's trouble or things that have to be addressed, and we're like, ah, how do we solve this? And then in the Brie and the trustees, we get together and we scratch our heads together. And, and the director, of the, the chairman of the trustees, um, who's one of the directors of the Dutch Brie, his name is, is Rob Ludwig, he says, are we trying, he, this has come up several times, are we trying to come up with a structural solution for a spiritual problem? <laughs> are we trying to come up with a structural problem, uh, solution for a relational problem? In other words, rather than really getting into the weeds relationally with God and with somebody else, are we just trying to come up with a rule so we don't have to deal with it, right? Uh, and this is this is certainly a a risk. There's a problem. We should come up with a policy rather than be vulnerable and talk through difficult things with somebody, trusting that the Lord will will be there with us. <clears throat> And again, similarly to when we talked about the, the power of the flesh, we talked about what are some of the things that result from it, what are some of the fruit, what comes out of it. Similarly, we can talk about implications or what is a result, what comes as a result of living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's it's going to contrast in almost every way. Uh, our lives will be a demonstration of God's being and His reality. Uh, not just His morals. Sometimes we think that we want to demonstrate God's truth or God's, um, yeah, what God what God declares is right and wrong, and our, it has to do with the morality of our own living, and that's very good and true. But, but, but what about our lives demonstrating that God is even there? <laughs> A much more basic belief. Um, the world will see, and I think we ourselves will see that God is at work, and there's no doubt that it is God at work because it'll happen in the context of our weakness, of our limitedness of our humility it will happen in the context of our emptiness our prayer and I think this is something that has played out again and again and again in Labrie I think this is this is where some of our own experiences in Labrie um, we could talk all evening about the ways in which um, God has shown his reality and has, has really honored Francis and Edith Schaefer's desire that Labrie would be a demonstration of God's reality uh, the reality of prayer, that God actually responds to real prayers about real things. It's not just prayer; isn't just about entering into some mystical state. Uh, it's it, it can have very, very tangible results in the real world because God is real and He, and he responds and He hears us. Um, there's no reason we often say this. There's no reason, humanly speaking, that Labrie should exist. Any of the human reasons why organizations organizations exist, none of them apply to the brain. Uh, it only exists because God has sustained it from the beginning, and God has continued to sustain us in all the, the different branches. And um, we talk about institutional weaknesses of Labrie, things that we have that from the very beginning have been a part of how Labrie operates intentionally. It's institutional, as in it's 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 throughout the whole organization, but it's it's a built-in weakness as opposed to institutional strategy or institutional strength. It's institutional weakness, uh, and these institutional weaknesses are intended to display the reality every day that God is real, God is there, He responds to prayer, uh, the Holy Spirit is active, uh, both to the world outside, whoever happens to be looking, 
but also to the people within Libri who need to be reminded of that every bit as much, that God is real and he's faithful and he responds. Um, what explanation could there be for Libri's existence other than God? Um, is, it, is it the good financial planning? Uh, is it sound, sound and continuous fundraising? Uh, effective marketing and advertising? Efficiency? Um, ability to predict trends in every generation? Uh, none of these things happen at Libri. <laughs> um, when we trust God and witness the Spirit work in our weaknesses, we will actually grow in our awareness of spiritual reality. We will grow because we will see God at work. Um, So this kind of spiritual awareness only comes from trusting in God and not in our own resources, in our own activism, in our own expertise. Uh, It's only then that we actually see God work. And so Schaefer says a lot about the restoration of this experiential connection to God. It's not just about having the right ideas. That's very important. It's important to think true thoughts about God. Uh, But it's also important to actually experience that as a reality in our daily life. Um, But what he's saying is the extent to which we trust God is the extent to which we will grow in a sense of that reality. Trusting and then seeing him work. Uh, something that I think we can we could certainly apply in this in this um, context is that there are good reason to be suspicious uh, good reasons I think to be suspicious of growth for its own sake. Whenever growth is talked about as a virtue in itself, I think we need to be very careful. Um, sometimes to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we need to be suspicious of growth. And this sounds stupid, of course. <laughs> it sounds crazy. How can church growth ever be a problem? Uh, of course, the Bible teaches us that God will grow his church, and the church will grow, and that the nations will hear and come, and the nations are, are, are the inheritance that Jesus gets for, for what he's done. And so there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the church growing. We, want, we should be praying that it grows. We should be seeking to help it grow. Um, God is growing the universal church in a sense that's invisible to all of us, though. And I don't think there's really a promise that every individual church will grow or should. Neither is there a promise that if a church does grow, it's the work of God. If a church grows for the wrong reasons, it's not the work of God. Uh, Growth can simply be a result of feeding people lies that they want to hear. That is it. That is the way some organizations grow uh, or being so sensitive to what might offend people that no one is ever really challenged with the truth that can, that can grow a church uh, seeker sensitivity at its worst obviously it's good to be sensitive to people coming in and to try to uh, eliminate unnecessary obstacles of course, it's part of loving people. It's part of wanting the church to be a welcoming place that that, that expresses God's welcome. Um, but uh, at its worst, seeker sensitivity can be based entirely on comfort and giving people what they want, providing words, music, and experiences that are as close as possible to what they already like. This is this technique can grow a church. It's a technique. Um, 
certainly, again, as a musician, you think of, well, like, what's, basically, can we have music that sounds indistinguishable from pop radio? Uh, romance songs, basically. Um, this is, that's totally an unfair generalization, but some, some music, it's, it's like, well, is, is there, is there, um, is there room for something else? Maybe that, that, that someone hasn't heard before in church. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so in the name of growth, there's tremendous pressure to file down the rough edges of biblical truth, <laughs> uh, to reinforce whatever is most appealing to people about the culture around us. Um, if we rely on the tools of the world, the publicity, the noise, the manipulation, uh, to use Schaefer's words, he warns us, the devil actually honors these tools. The devil honors them because they give glory to people and not to God. So to view growth in numbers as the sure sign of God's approval is a total mistake. It's very dangerous. Uh, to trust in growth in itself is, is, is a great temptation. Growth is not intrinsically a virtue. What if, and this is just a, you know, a hypothetical, what if God's desire for a particular church is that it will stay small while its people will grow in the knowledge and love of Christ and in maturity? What if God's plan for a church is not explosive growth, but a deep discipleship of the people that are already there? Uh, can we bring ourselves to accept that this might be his plan for our church? Uh, or, or is growth, this notion of growth, intrinsically have the authority? <clears throat> Very similar issue, I think. We could be suspicion of speed and efficiency for their own sake. Sometimes in God's timing, the rate of spiritual growth and healing and maturity is slow. Uh, slowly may be the only way we grow in the things that matter most to God. Uh, the techniques of the world promise quick results um, because they're, in a sense, they're aping the self-help section of the bookstore or if those things still exist. Uh, um, you know, there's three three steps and, and you're very busy and you, you can accomplish all the things you need in the, you know, in a, five minutes a day, whatever, because uh, it's about technique. Uh, so trusting in methods and techniques can lead us to undervalue any virtue that doesn't any virtue that doesn't respond to them. And this this is really one of the one of the most dangerous things about it, because there's so much that doesn't respond to quick techniques, and we're so addicted to quick techniques. Those things that don't respond to quick techniques must not be important. Uh, we, we we can't seem to control them. It's too slow. Um, so we'll focus just on the things that that are that we're able to manipulate. Uh, but these things happen to be humility and love and patience and courage and truthfulness and, and, and willingness to suffer unjustly. And, and it's, it's the essence of what it is to be the Christian. These are slow things. People grow in them slowly um, through life experience, through suffering, through lost relationships, through any, any number of different painful but long drawn out processes. Uh, this is how God works. This is his timing. Uh, we don't grow in these virtues by superficial and quick methods. We just don't. Uh, we need to get used to the Spirit's pace of doing work. And this is the power of the Spirit rather than the power of the flesh, which is generally pretty impatient. Uh, another thing um, that's another fruit of this is, is, is waiting, prayer and waiting. 
and waiting with real openness to what God might do. There is so much in the Bible about waiting, uh, it's, it's impossible to even scratch the surface. But you know, when you think about it, waiting describes most of what we call normal life. It's waiting. You're waiting for me to be done with this lecture. Um, you're waiting for multiple things at once. I'm waiting for the timer to go off. I'm also waiting for something to come in the mail, hopefully in the next few days. I'm also waiting for this, my daughters to get back from another country. So, you know, like you're waiting for multiple layers of waiting in our lives all the time. There's no escaping it. Uh, but but Christian people are called to to wait in a very particular way uh, on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Um, both for the fruition of his promises, big promises that he's made to all humanity, his return, um, the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. There are huge promises uh, and that every Christian is waiting for. But there's also waiting in the context of prayer, waiting in the context of guidance, uh, asking God to make clear what the, what the, what, what the right path is. Um, and then actually having openness to what he would say. The waiting isn't just perfunctory. Now we have to wait. <laughs> it's waiting really with an openness to what, what God might do. Um, <clears throat> waiting for opportunities to serve. Waiting in prayer, listening. Waiting for healing. Waiting for greater clarity about a job opportunity. Wait, whatever it is. Um, this is not that waiting does not mean that we live a life of total passivity, waiting for God to just give us the answer or just uh, or just to move us as if we're a um, a chess piece. Um, and this is where Schaefer talks about this this uh, it's kind of a tricky term, but active passivity, um, which he's just trying to get get at the 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 fact that as we as we uh, rely on the Lord, as we wait for Him to be to direct us, it's not that we're sitting inert. We are in the process of, of working. Uh, we're responding to the things that He's told us perfectly clearly to do. We are uh, preparing and listening. We are ready to respond to His call. All these are very active, and yet uh, never with um, an attitude that we're the ones making it happen, that we're the ones that are that are setting the agenda. So active passivity, it's, it's um, you can talk about it later if you want. Um, but it, it does involve holding loosely to our plans. It doesn't mean having no plans, just waiting for the, the words to appear in the sky about what I'm supposed to do today. Uh, it might mean prayerfully uh, and with the with the help of other other Christians who are wiser than ourselves, um, making decisions and stepping out in faith, but holding on to those plans loosely, uh, with openness to the fact that God may change. God may change course even from things that we thought He called us to earlier, uh, but it's up to Him. Um, Donald Drew, who's a, who's a, a, a uh, he's he's not with us anymore, but used to work at the Bree, um, talks about the. The prayer, asking God to bless or block. Sometimes we don't get uh, some absolute clear sense of what God wants us to do. Sometimes we don't hear, most of the time, we don't hear audible voices from the Lord telling us what to do. But we can ask Him to bless as we head forward uh, in faith to either bless or block us. This is not what you would have me do. Uh, Make it clear. Open doors, closed doors. 
This is part of what active passivity uh, looks like practically in life. <clears throat> I think also um, living in the power of the Spirit, I think it's also important to, to conceive of a, a I just call it a theology of participation. Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way leaves no room for the I want God as my wingman mentality. Instead, it requires us to consider what God is doing already. What is the work that God is doing around me right now, and how can I participate in it using the gifts that he's given me? So the question is, and we see this like uh, in Labrie, I think we, we remind ourselves all the time that this is God's work, not the work we are doing for God, not just that, but literally the work that God is doing, um, that we have been drawn into. Labrie is not, and it wasn't in the beginning, uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer didn't come up with this great game plan, this great ministry model, and flesh it all out. It, was, it grew completely in this very um, bumpy, haphazard, sort of organic way, uh, really, really growing out of their own hospitality, literal hospitality in their home, but also the hospitality of their persons and, and, and their ideas and their um, willingness to engage with people's questions. And, and what is known as Labrie today is, grew really under the Lord's guidance out of that, uh, not because there was a, <clears throat> a game plan. <laughs> um, so a theology of participation is about being used by God for God's purposes. Uh, it's to actively resist the instrumental view of God we, took, we talked about earlier, where God functions as a tool to help me get what I really want. The Lord's work and the Lord's way is the opposite. Uh, What is your agenda, God? What is your vision, God? How do you want to use me to contribute to your goal? I am the instrument. (laughs) How do you want to use me? Okay, Uh, this is moving to our last section here. I want to just talk a little bit... Uh, I'm from Massachusetts, and so people from Massachusetts often have just a problematic view of life. And uh, when you, when they hear a straightforward statement, they kind of like um, look doubtful. So this is the section where I, that I entitle "Yeah, but um, it's the Yeah, but" section because you're kind of like, "Yeah, but what, what about this? <laughs> what do you mean?" It's a very Massachusetts thing to do. Um, <clears throat> Is Schaefer uh, pushing some sort of charismatic agenda, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we to expect some sort of extraordinary the Holy Spirit's going to move and blow the blow the roof off this place uh, with some crazy dramatic display of power? Um, is it a call to to live this sort of extraordinary life? Um, and of course, God is free to do that whenever He wants. Uh, but the power of the Spirit that, that Schaefer is talking about here is manifested in very ordinary things. This is, this is accessing the power of the Lord in the ordinariness of life. And he, he refers back to the Ephesians 6 passage. All the things that are... He's talking about armor, right? Swords and helmets and gear and all this stuff. But it's the armor of, of, of righteousness. It's the armor of... Um, you, mean, you, look at, you look at the words that, that, are, that the armor is... Are, 
each one of these items is connected to, and it's, it's the very ordinary way of life. It's our attempt to be obedient to the Lord. Um, and uh, and so he's not actually saying that to live in the power of the Spirit means that, that we're going to somehow be in some on some spiritual high all the time. Um, he says this, Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way is not some exotic thing. It is having and practicing the mentality that Christ commands. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> having and practicing the mentality that Christ commands. All the things we talked about earlier, about the, the, the mentality of the cross, humility, um, not seeking our own way. Okay, the second, yeah, but, yeah, but what about getting things done? Aren't, if we really take this seriously, aren't we just going to be ineffective in life? <laughs> um, Schaefer says some inter- interesting things here. Uh, he says that whenever we are living in radical dependence on God, there will always be work for us to do. He says this, We need not fear that if you wait for God's Spirit, you will not get as much done as if you charge ahead in the flesh. <clears throat> After all, who can do most, you or the God of heaven and earth? It's a very nice, simple way of putting it. <laughs> uh, neither, he says, neither does the power of the Spirit in our lives mean that we will never be tired or worn down. Sometimes we think about this like, if I could just do it in the strength of the Lord. And we, and we talk about that as if there's some spare gas tank that we haven't yet accessed somehow. That if we just figure out a way to access it, we'll, we'll never feel depleted. Like we're just going to plug into the other gas tank, and we're like, "Oh, it's the reserve," you know. Um, and and sometimes we think about what you know, living in the strength of God must be that, right? Why is it that none of us have it? Um, where is it? Um, and it's not that. <laughs> he says. He says, uh, <clears throat> "No, um, the power of the Spirit is not an um, an easy out for Christian people. We will get tired." He writes this. To the contrary, both the scriptures and the history of the church teach that if the Holy Spirit is working, the whole man will be involved, and there will be much cost to the Christian. The more the Holy Spirit works, the more Christians will be used in battle, and the more they are used, the more they will be, per- the more there will be personal cost and tiredness. But I would add to this: there, there, there are different kinds of tired. There are some kinds of tiredness that I think, if we're living in the Spirit, we will not experience. We may experience the ordinary kind of tiredness just from, like he says, being in the battle that God is calling us to be in. But there's a kind of exhaustion that comes from feeling that the task of saving the world or just our neighborhood is really up to me. That is not the kind of exhaustion that the Christian should experience. (laughs) Many of us might experience that. But that is the kind of tiredness that we should be free from. As we trust in the Lord. This battle is God's. It is not up to my goodness or up to my strength to to save the world or even some tiny part of the world uh, or my friend or my neighbor or my family member. Um, and this is part of what trusting God looks like is, 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 is uh, yes, working hard in obedience to him, but with a knowledge that we are, we're, it's up to him. He's the one that is accomplishing this. Um, the tiredness of feeling that we have to prove ourselves to God to get his to get his approval or his attention or his love. That's a tiredness that Christians should not experience. Even though we do. But something that we this is something that that as we grow, I think that sort of tiredness um, is something we should experience less and less as we have a deeper and deeper sense of 
of the moment-to-moment work of Christ in our lives. Um, the tiredness we get from trying to, yeah, to earn some approval from God. Um, can't be done, and the approval is already given to us. <clears throat> All right. Um, another, another. Yeah, but um, are we to distrust all human wisdom? So our statistics and best practices and strategies based on studies, are they all going to just lead us astray? Um, is the Lord's work in the Lord's way simply a spiritual sounding euphemism for burying our heads in the sand and refusing to, to avail ourselves of good human knowledge that's out there? Um, is it akin to the Christian you know, rejection of science and facts and evidence? You know? uh, if there's good information out there about how contemporary people tend to respond to evangelism, shouldn't we use it? Um, if there are studies out there uh, that show what causes churches to dwindle and die, shouldn't we be aware of that? Um, yeah, these things are not bad in themselves necessarily, and I think that's the, the main point. You keep coming, coming back to it again and again. Having an awareness of, of uh, how the world works, having an awareness of statistics and techniques is not a bad thing. Uh, but it, it really does come again and again and again to the question of trust. What, what are we actually trusting in? Is this our hope? This statistic, this technique, this method, is this our hope? Are we putting it in the center? Or are we putting God in the center and then asking him for wisdom to know what we turn to in terms of the, the many facts we see around us? Um, <clears throat> we might be perceived as failures in the eyes of the world. Uh, we might be perceived as uh, irresponsible or naive. Um, sometimes waiting on the Lord in faith means we will not get as much accomplished as we want to and as the world expects. And I think this is just a fact. Sometimes sometimes we will not. Um, but something, something Dick has often said, and, it, and it's something that is just very, uh, it's sort of like shockingly obvious. But <laughs> one of those things where you're like, oh, uh, God calls us to obedience, not to success. Um, it is his approval that we are to seek in our lives. When we feel like we're a failure before God, are we actually a failure before God? Or are we failing some other standard that we hold more important than God? Um, and again, near the end of his sermon, Francis Schaeffer says this, and, and this is really, I think, a very, very radical, different perspective on success and failure, victory and defeat. And this is where his perspective and sort of this perspective of the world, I think, are most at um, in conflict. He says this, In this war, if Christians win a battle by using worldly means, they have really lost. On the other hand, when we seem to lose the battle while waiting on God, in reality we have won. The world may mistakenly say they have lost. But if God's people seem to be beaten in a specific battle, not because of sin or lack of commitment or lack of prayer or lack of paying a price, but because they have waited on God and refused to resort to the flesh, then they have won. So, I think this takes a lot of preparation in ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves for being to being willing to say, 
everyone around me and even voices within myself want to call this a total stupid loser of a failure, right? <laughs> and yet, um, do I take seriously what God, God's evaluation of what's happening here? <clears throat> um, sometimes remaining faithful to God and having nothing to show is the task that God had for us. Sometimes. Um, it may be the result uh, that has great value to God. We don't always know, uh, but it is his evaluation that matters, not the world's. I'm going to end by um, quoting, this is a quote that Jim Paul used in his lecture, and I was so excited by it, I had to chase it down and look for it, and I finally found it, thankfully in a small book. Uh, it's, it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, which is I recommend to anybody. Um, and this, he's talking about, uh, this is very much in line with the kind of thing that, that Schaefer is calling us to, to live in the spirit, being connected with the way of Christ, which is humility and um, not placing ourselves above anybody else. I'll just, I'll read this, uh, this quote and then, then we'll end. And then you guys can, uh, we can enter into our discussion time. There's a couple different quotes I'm stringing together here. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. One who worries about the loss of time, sorry, one who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail, he's talking about being helpful, and, and if, I'm, if I'm going to be helpful in these practical things, I'm losing time for what's important. Um, I'll start over. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too solemnly. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks, as the priest passed by the man whom had fallen among the thieves, perhaps, perhaps reading the Bible. When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised athwart our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and balked, but it is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand where where it can perform a service, and that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. I love this, this kind of openness, because this, this is practically what it often looks like. You know, we t- In Labrie, we often talk about, like, I have this idea of everything I need to get done. You know, uh, Nikayla may have a morning where she needs to balance the books and do the taxes and pay the bills. And I may have a morning where, like, I need to work on a lecture. You know, and that's our work that God's calling us to, right? And then somebody knocks on the door and needs a new MP3 player, and it doesn't work, and, they didn't, and something's wrong with the computer. And then uh, someone comes with a package and needs it signed for, and someone, and before you know it, the morning's gone, and you didn't get your job done. And the thing that we remind ourselves of, the interruptions are the work. 
that's what it is. Yeah, you do have to get these other stuff done, you know, eventually. But the interruptions are not in, are not an interruption from the work. They are the work. They're part of it. You know, anyone who works with with real people uh, knows that this is true. People are people with people come interruptions. Uh, with people come inefficiencies. And uh, Bonhoeffer is saying that uh, the, I love the wording here: the crooked but straight path of God. This is what we have to be. Uh, attuned to and um, and to respond to that's where I'm going to end and for those of you who are new to Brie, this is a time where you can you can you can guilt free you can walk out of the room and go home that's totally fine uh, there's no pressure to stay but if you do want to stay you can stay and have a discussion and ask questions um, and we'll talk for a while <clears throat> Are there any thoughts? Does anybody have a yeah, but? I tried to preempt some of them, but yeah, Andrew. (laughs) Thank you for the lecture. Appreciate it. So, uh, I don't know, I guess practical level, especially from the, you know, the very beginning of the lecture, you're talking about just kind of evaluating churches and how they do things and are very concerned about their methods and things like that. Um, on a practical level, I'm going to move and we're going to look for a new church. Yeah. And, um, and maybe some people here are in the process of looking for a church or might move or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and... Uh, I don't know. I know it's a very, very big question, so I'm not expecting mm-hmm. to really tackle the whole thing, but especially this whole thing of just trying to, I mean, you visit a church, right? Mm-hmm. And it, you can only learn so much of just visiting a church once or twice, but like, um, yeah. how do you kind of, I'm sorry, this might be too burdensome a question, but how do you get a sense of like the spirit's working, yeah. and this isn't a place where people are just uh, interested in programming and yeah, yeah. human trusting techniques? Mm-hmm. And, and, it might be too big of a question. No, no, yeah, no, it's it's a, but it, but it's a, that's it's where the question gets real, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you are right that it's, it's you know, there's no one simple answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's all it's always important whenever you're visiting a church and you don't really know what's going, you don't really know what the church culture is like. You don't know many people in it. Um, it's not as if we are sitting on some objective throne, <laughs> evaluating whether a church is operating in the power of the spirit or the flesh. We, in the process of evaluating churches, can either operate in the power of the spirit or the flesh also. In other words, I can be judging this church by some standard of my own that isn't necessarily God's. And so I think we just have to be very humble and and whatever whatever our first impression of a church is, we need to... Um, Acknowledge the fact that we, our, our knowledge is very limited. We don't see. Um, we can look around and see this church is made up of these people are hypocrites, they're a mess. Uh, but we also, God must not be at work here. Well, you know, given what we said about the, the pace that the Holy Spirit works in people's lives, God might have brought those people a long way already. <laughs> We've seen, we're seeing them at one moment in their life and, uh, 
And so, yeah, our, and, and that, that one moment in which we make our observations and evaluations is, um, we just need to be very humble in that moment. Um, I hesitate to say anything more specific than that, although I think, I think, um, and I also don't want to say that, you know, God is just not in, in no way active in big mega churches that are programmed to the, to the hilt, you know, <laughs> I know that God, I mean, actually the, 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 the Mars Hill podcast for its, for its flaws, I thought was also tried to do, try, tried to acknowledge that even, even despite so many of the very dangerous and terrible things going on, the reason why it was so painful is that God was at work in people's lives in the midst of in individuals' lives, in the midst of all this crazy stuff going on, and, and so like, yeah. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not gonna. There's no litmus test for like this is how you, this is how you notice a, or recognize a church that's doing it right or not. Um, yeah, some of it you won't, you'd only know by getting to know people in the church and how, and you know how how the church views prayer. Is prayer is prayer talked about and and practiced in the church in a way that that is um, exhibits a real openness to God changing our plans I think there can be a sometimes we can place the we can allow God to make changes within certain parameters <laughs> right like we basically have the structure sorted out God there's some wiggle room here where you could say something to us um, and as opposed to just a, a real openness to how God would, you know, how God would lead uh, in the particularities of a, of a, of a church, uh, I think that's all these things are hard to know unless you really, unless you sort of commit and get to know a church fairly well. I'm not sure if you can tell any of these things. You can certainly tell the superficial things on a Sunday morning, like, "Wow, this this worship feels like a big rock concert." I mean, they, yeah, there's things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, sir. Ben, do you think? Um, I'm just thinking of how to answer Andrew's question too, and I'm just wondering if um, being able to ask a church leader how decisions are made in the church could be a it could lend insight yeah. into yeah. How, how how does a like the church government and the denomination and everything and how that works um, would impact that conversation a lot. Is it, is it a, you know, like in Massachusetts, is it a congregational church in which basically the congregation votes on things or, or does it have some um, governing body? And, and uh, but the real question, I mean, that in a sense is, isn't the issue. I guess the sense is, well, how, how whatever the governing body is, what is that governing body's relationship to the guidance of the Holy Spirit? 
right? Whether it's in the local congregation or whether it's on a broader presbytery or something. Or, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, Andrew, do you want to come back on that? I mean, it's it's um, yeah. No, yeah, it's such a big question. Yeah, I feel like even if church has a like structure and plans and committees and like you know days a week where we have services or meetings mm-hmm. outreach it's like it's um I, don't know, I, well, I appreciate the challenge though mm-hmm. a lot of it is our hearts like if mm-hmm. we're church we're adding a more center to the church <laughs> right right, right <laughs> so yeah it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. really it's not we don't want to be ju- harsh judges because we know yep. only grace too mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's right I just have one other thought on yeah. this I think both just by observation and then maybe also by some querying of, of, a, of a church body, like how, how a church responds to its youngest people mm-hmm. and how, how children are treated, um, and then also its most vulnerable, whether mm-hmm. those are yeah, people, people that tend toward be on the margins mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I think like those are people groups within a church that you know just make things make things slower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like how a church body handles being mm-hmm. slowed down, I think yeah. is telling too. Yeah. Is that met with impatience or is that met with or is it, is it Grace and, like, and stride. Well, actually, they're not here. You know, or right. like, yeah. we make sure the kids are very much yeah. doing their own thing. In a different or, room. Yeah. 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 More did you have? Well, I, I was just going to say, um, be patient <laughs> and spend some time. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes you can walk into a church and immediately sense this is not the place... I, I can't be part of this church yeah. but um, I think you just give yourself some time to try to go to different places you know you don't probably know yet what the op- what the options are what the churches are in the area but, but to be patient and and give some time to a number of different mm-hmm. places that are um, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for being as local as possible that isn't always possible mm-hmm. <laughs> To be really, really local, <clears throat> but and and I guess the only other thing that says you're not going to find a perfect church. Mm-hmm. So because um, there, there there ain't no such thing. There wasn't in the New Testament. Just read Paul's letters. Look what he was dealing with. Look at read the the first few chapters of the Book of Revelation. Jesus talking about mm-hmm. the, the seven churches there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were one or two that he gave only praise to, but most of them were mm-hmm. some of them was mostly condemnation, but but some of them was you know strengthen what's 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 good, but what's um, what's weak, but what's mm-hmm. good, and and get rid of this stuff. So you know you, different different people feel like this is a church. I, this is an imperfect church I can work in, and I can be part of, it, and I can contribute to, it, and I can learn from, it, and I can be part of the community. Mm-hmm. But um, give yourself some time. Don't feel like you have to make a decision instantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and another thing, I mean, I guess maybe this is obvious, but just there, there's likely to be a lot of diversity within a church in terms of their, their and, and sometimes our first impression based on what we see up front on a Sunday morning yeah. 
might not reflect what's going on in the in the lives of people in that church. And um, you know, I I just this is something that going back to my hobby horse of you know. Um, uh, something that was humbling for me once is, uh, uh, Kristen will laugh at this it, it was uh, at our church a number of years ago there was a um, I think it was like a Lessons and Carols Sunday morning Christmas service big you know, best attended service of the year kind of thing lots of people that we never saw any other day you know and like this meticulously planned program with choir and you know like I it was awesome. It was great music, and, and I think it was a great celebratory kind of thing. And and, um, and there were two things that happened in the service that were just so. Um, well, the, the the more effort you put into to, to making something polished and seamless, mm-hmm. you know, the more horrifying it is when some little thing goes wrong. Of course, <laughs> and there was some completely insignificant thing that didn't matter at all, like. At the wrong part of the service, the choir stood up and then they sat back down again or something and, and, like, oh! um, and, and it, you know, because to some degree, you know, to some degree you want, you, you don't want unnecessary chaos. You don't want there to be distractions from people worshiping the Lord. And there's reasons why we plan things like this and this is, it's not bad to do that. But like to hold, again, to hold loosely to what it is that actually is, is going to, to be effective, and not 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 have a rigid idea of what's effective. Because like, lots of people enjoyed the service. But one person came up to me who had never been there before and said, "I was uncomfortable doing this service until that happened, and then I realized that you could be just an ordinary human being and be here, and that I was that I, I was so thankful for it." And then of course you're like, "Oh, okay. Well, it's clearly God is doing something." Uh, in the life of this person, and maybe many other people who didn't come to, to mention that, um, that's and, and God's standards of what's effective and what's actually working in someone has nothing to do with my standards of what the, how the service should have gone, right? Um, and so it was, and it's not that all that planning was pointless and we shouldn't have done it, but it was just like it's not, it's not the ultimate, it's not our ultimate hope. It's, it's not, what, it's not what we're putting our trust in here. Our trust is in the Lord to do something with what we offer and whatever whatever that something is. And in this case, it was our screw up. That I think it was the same. I think it was the same service. It might have been the same service in which Jim Pocock, our our pastor, for the Mm -hmm. the last hymn, "Joy to the World." He went up to the mic and said, "Sing out lustfully." He liked to use the word lustily, but he just got it wrong. When it counted, he got it wrong, and it was so funny. And I was just like, and everybody stood up and sang, and it was awesome. But it was, I was sitting next to, yeah, I was sitting next to, did he just say lustily? Yeah. There we go. No, this reminds me of um, where we've been minority members of a black church for a very long time, and one of the things that we've really appreciated about it is very much in keeping with with Anderson, is that um, back before COVID, when there were lots of choirs and children's choirs and children getting up and doing solos and, you know, all sorts of things, um, if somebody was up in the front to either talk about something or lead in prayer or sing, and they stumbled or they lost their minds, 
rather than there being this sort of ooh, the whole congregation would say, that's all right, take your time, it's okay, take your time. We've never been in a church like that. It was just so reassuring. It was just mm-hmm. sort of expected. We're, we're, this is not a perfect performance, you know, just... It was just something. Not a lot of not a lot of awkward silences at that at your no, church. No, 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 it's all right. Yeah, yeah. But that was so. I just I just have found that so refreshing. So mm. rather than so, this sort of mm. help something terrible just happen. It's just take your time. It's very human. Yeah, yeah just very human. Very described to me as a cringe moment. Oh yeah. You shouldn't have cringe moments in the church. <laughs> I think that, like, I used to do a lot of youth ministry, and mm-hmm. I, I went to this conference, and the guy was saying that they didn't, they didn't have their students do performances because, uh, like, he kind of blamed it on American Idol. Like, everyone, everyone mm-hmm. thinks they can kind of. One thinks they're like the expert on what music should sound like, or whatever. <laughs> like, like you watch American Idol and you hear Simon Cowell or whatever critique this song. Mm, or mm-hmm. We can critique the song too, and so uh, I see. it's just kind of like, yeah, a lot of that worldly like mm-hmm. like uh, competition shows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awful. Yeah, or the, the things that. Or branded as like reality TV, but it's actually like really scripted. It's totally <laughs> orchestrated, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to criticize too. Yeah. Yeah. Criticize yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the True. set on those shows are just trying to get a reaction, and then. So. Mm. Yeah, because the ratings go up if someone cries due due to the harsh yeah. criticism, you know. It's like they're clearly setting out to achieve something. They're not. It's not reality in the slightest. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Any other thoughts? Good. Well, we can wrap it up if anybody wants to chat a little longer feel free but but uh i think we can call it a night thank you, thank you.